Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Dr. Carol Francis. I do not know what's happening to our initial sound, and I'm so glad that you could join us today. Um, we are waiting for Dr. Bernie Siegel to join us and his very busy schedule. I'm so glad that he's able to actually get back to us and participate in this complicated discussion about death and dying and living. It is probably one of the most important issues or contents or experiences that you really do need to come to grips with. We're all going to die. It is inevitable. And if it is robbing you of your life to be thinking about your death, then you're going to be missing out on years and years and years, months and months and months of opportunities to have a fabulous set of moments, a fabulous set of years, and a fabulous set of connections with people. I often find that individuals don't even want to engage in relationships because they anticipate the breakup or the ending of the relationship or the death of the other person uh, as soon as they fall in love. So that the falling in love experience is almost devastating because it's like, well, what happens when this person leaves or something happens? And the truth is, is that it always happens and there's always an ending. And that ending may be death or it may be divorce or it may be separation of time and space. It may be, it will always end, at least in terms of our understanding of our 3D existence on this mortal earth. You could talk about the other belief systems or etheric processes and you know that we do cover those amazingly important and spiritual components of life as well. But how do you approach death and dying as essential to your sense of how you're going to approach life? So some people will approach life with a vim and vigor and say, well, nothing really matters because it all washes out in the end. We're, we're all equally devastated by the end. So, you know, why even think about it? Go forward, be invigorated by the opportunities you have now. That attitude of living in the now for some people, it keeps them extraordinarily indulgent and not responsible toward life. And others, it keeps them extraordinarily dil- diligent and enthusiastic about life so that they're not troubled by the sense that life is going to end as such because they virtually ignore it because it keeps them motivated to keep their foot on the pedal, so to speak, to keep the speed of their vehicle of life as fast and as efficient as possible. Those might be risk takers or those might be individuals that are cautious. Now, let's talk about the people who are cautious for a moment, because the cautious individuals tend to feel that they'll be able to avoid death or definitely avoid difficulties or complications in life if they avoid risk. And for many, that may be exactly true. And a low risk threshold is fine if that's what you adopt. But if you're adopting a low risk life, I mean a very low risk life because of the fear of death and because of the belief that you're going to be able to avoid it, you're really doing it out of a complete denial that death is inevitable and separation endings are inevitable. So therefore, would it be more to your satisfaction to live life a little bit or maybe a lot more risk oriented from the standpoint that you decide to do those things in your bucket list that you definitely want to do instead of continually telling yourself, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. It's not safe for this. It's not safe for that. Now, please, I am a big person for balance and middle of the roading life. So in other words, I'm not suggesting that you go off one end or the other end, but I am encouraging those individuals that are risk averse 
to really look at why they are actually risk averse and to consider that maybe they are missing out on a tremendous amount of life and love and opportunity and experiences and also opportunity to help and intervene and be progressively creating good things for the remainder of individuals that are going to follow you. And they're going to follow you with their life and they're going to follow you also with their death. And how do you inspire them to optimize their life and their impact on the world around them as well? So whether you believe in life after death or reincarnation or some other sustaining aspects of your existence after your physical body dies is not really the question here as much as your actual physical presence here. Are you doing it to the best of your ability? You're still waiting for Bernie to come on, and I'm just a little bit concerned that maybe we've had a glitch in the phone system and the phone call. So I am getting us to contact him again to see if he can get through. And again, the guest number is 626-414-3510, 626-414-3510. And that is the number that he and you can call in with your questions. So the aspect of this issue that Dr. Bernie Siegel is so incredibly able to address is that he has seen a lot of life and he's seen a lot of death. And he's seen a lot of life and death in his very personal existence. And he's seen a lot of life and death in those patients that he has helped. And the process that he initiated in the 70s through his amazing book called Love, Medicine, and Miracles, which really has been the paving route for all of his other wonderful books. He has a plethora of books that every physician and every patient should read so that people will actually embrace as much of life as they can, even while they are facing serious illnesses. And how do they remain optimistic and honest about their serious illness and what they need to do? And how do you also remain optimistic and serious about trying to heal and get better and recover and at the same time if there is a need for preparing for your death and preparing your loved ones for your death how do you also go about doing that this incredibly complicated road that one has to walk to be able to uh, skate to one side of the issue and say this is how i'm going to be optimistic and i'm going to embrace life and i'm going to heal and I'm going to do all of these things and then take the moment to say, okay, in case that this is my last uh, set of uh, conflicts or complications or opportunities in life, what do I need to prepare for my loved ones? Is the trust fund in place? Is our money is okay? Um, is everything paid for? Is my junk thrown away so there's not laboring over that? Have I said what I needed to say to all of those that their life is optimized? Have I left any sort of residual resentments uh, that I've caused others to feel toward me or I feel toward others that really need to be cleared up ahead of time so others can go optimally on with their life is what do I need to prepare if this is my last get go in life and to face if you are in your most optimal mindset and your most optimal frame of, of heart, what would you do if you knew that this is your last day or your last week or last month what would you do and to make sure that those things are in place and to do it efficiently so you don't have to keep thinking about it or revisiting it or keep telling yourself you know i really should do that 
<laughs> it's that I really should do that that lets you know that you're procrastinating by something that would be advantageous. And every time you leave that I should do that hanging over your head, you are no doubt extremely um, compromising the energy that you have to invest in life by having to worry about um, something that you know you need to take care of. If you take care of it, it gets done. But you might recognize that you're not taking care of it because you are, quite frankly, afraid to face the reality of the death that you're going to go through. Now, some people have really horrible, chronic, and life-threatening, mortally significant illnesses that are diagnosed, and you face your mortality in a way that cannot be described for people for whom it's a theoretical question. Not only when you face it for your loved one, when suddenly they have a very bad diagnosis or very uh, poor prognosis, but you also face it for yourself when you have the bad diagnosis and bad prognosis. You Have I lived life? What was the purpose of all that I did? Boy, I certainly have those regrets now that I can't go back and fix those. Um, no, no, I don't want to go yet. Or the panic of, oh dear, you know, what is this all about? These are common and ordinary reactions, even though they feel traumatic and anxiety-filled and worrisome. So that you're, you are catapulted into this experience if you haven't already dealt with the reality of dying that is full of panic and worry and angst. And so today's program is truly about preparing yourself so that you can deal with the angst when you're not actually facing the prognosis of imminent mortality, imminent death. How do you go about doing that? So some individuals that are listening to this, and I thank you so much for tuning in, uh, we are waiting for Dr. Bernie Siegel to give us a call. He may have encountered a complication or an emergency of his own since he is a physician, and we may capture him on yet another day. But in light of you turning into this particular program and you have anxiety about death, I want you right now to know that you are not alone, that people have dealt with this anxiety through belief systems that have sustained them into not having to face the, the cessation of your existence. And that has a tremendous impact on people's abilities to live life very fully because they don't feel like it's actually going to end in any traumatic sort of way. This is an absolute option. For individuals who are agnostic and atheistic, that feels like an absolute lie and therefore not an option. And for individuals that say, I, I feel like the integrity in my life is to adopt an agnostic or an atheistic position, meaning I either don't know and or I do know that there's no life going forward, then you are left with the experience of I'm going to live with the inevitability of my dying, but why would I rob myself of living so completely fully by being anxious about this inevitability? It may happen in a second. It may happen in 20 years. Now think for a moment. Let's say that you are facing the inevitability of death while we're talking, and you don't know it, but you actually have 40, 50, 60, 30, 20 years, 10 years ahead of you, and you could optimize so much of your experiences, what you contribute to yourself and to others, and how you take care of your estate or your monies or, your, or, or the way you plan even for the monies to be distributed over those next many years. 
if you're in a retirement phase of life. So that you have to plan ahead with the, the greatest amount of optimization of everything that's going on for you, knowing that you want life to be as full as you can make it. And that would be a commitment that would be in reverse of anxiety. Okay, I can be anxious about this and I can live every day with the dread and fear that I could die. But why would I catapult myself into a state of complete anxiety and not try to solve the issues that I possibly can, short of the fact that I can't solve that I'm going to die? Now, maybe, maybe not in the so distant future, maybe in the very different distant future, we will be able to exchange all of our body parts and continue to clone ourselves into the next existence for centuries, for decades, who knows? But right now, that is not the reality, at least not for what I know. <laughs> so therefore, given that that's not your reality, you don't get to embrace the possibility of continuing to live forever. You have to make those plans. So right now, in this very moment, know that you are possibly one of those individuals that lives in the panic and the anxiety that you could die. And maybe as you have grown older, and it's usually past the age of middle age, where people begin to realize the inevitability of this. It usually hits people who have not experienced a chronic illness or a life-threatening situation, either when someone very close to them has died or when they've passed the age of about 50 in our society, our Western society, and they go closer to retirement, about 65, and definitely as they reach into 70 and 80, when their friends are passing or when they just feel the decline of their physical well-being. So that they recognize that even though they may be doing all that they can do to optimize their health and well-being, their body continues to go down the road of not functioning as well, getting older, stiffer, less comfortable, more complicated to live in. I do know that one of the lessons my very beloved mother uh, taught me was that the golden years are not necessarily all that golden. And of anybody, she definitely optimized her life all the way up to the very last breath she took. However, the golden years are not so golden means that it is complicated because you have to deal with this complicated body in an age where mobility and independence is everything to individuals. We find that people who are facing the elderly part of their life, that is the loss of the capacity to live independently that's more strenuous and more stressful, more troublesome to them than anything else. I cannot function independently. It has a lot of implications of being dependent on people who may or may not want to take care of them or may have to take care of them for other reasons. So they experience kind of a frustration associated to their death. Having said all that, we are wonderfully joined by Dr. Bernie Siegel. I thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Hello, Dr. Uh, Bernie? I'm not Dr. Oh, this Bernie. Is Oh, this is not Bernie. Hello, how are you? Well, this is Dr. Carol Francis. Can you introduce yourself to us quickly? I'm Patty. Hi, Patty. And why is it you decided to call today? To learn something new. Okay. Are there any questions that you have going into the program so far? No, I just logged in and I was interested to listen more. Okay, very good. Then I'm going to go ahead and put you back on mute so that you can listen and enjoy. Thank you so much, Patty, for joining us as an active caller as opposed to passive listener. And all of the all of you listeners, please feel free, like Patty, to join in on the process. Now, there is another aspect of facing death at a later age called loneliness. And the loneliness process is 
I am going through an experience that no one else really can understand. They can understand the decline and the difficulties, kind of venomous complications that you have to face when your body is not working as well. So the sense of loneliness really does have to be taken care of. And we find that while women live traditionally longer than their husbands, and there are more women in the elderly ages than there are men, that the women have to reach out to each other with a great deal more vim and vigor than they did before. They may be relieved of the burden of taking care of an ailing husband, for example, but not relieved in terms of the loneliness and the feeling of vulnerability that's associated to being on your own. And yet on another hand, to have the challenges of being able to work your own finances, work your own life situation, research at your own pace, your own time, and in your own way, being extraordinarily patient with yourself and helping others learn to be very patient with you as well, is an act of exercising your independence as you move into a very different time of life and phase of life than many of the people who are there to help you in the service industry. Now, family may or may not be available to assist you, they being very busy with their own activities, they being at a distance, or they not even being around. So that the loneliness is something that needs to be compensated for and associating with other individuals facing exactly what you're facing may be the best remedy. What I do find is that individuals that do seek out connection and communication with other people on a fun or social or craft or, or socially helping other individuals tend to have the most optimizing phase of going through this era of life. Not only are they being industrious in a very different way than they might have been the rest of their life, not only are they in connection with other individuals with whom they can laugh and talk, but they also realize that they're with other individuals that are going through a very similar experience that they are in terms of facing a totally different type of life that faces that death is inevitable. Now, the question is, is that as our bodies become more and more vulnerable and we get closer to dying, whether it's because of a major illness that we know is encroaching on our life energies or age, then we find that we have to look death in the face and say, okay, I know you're going to come, but I am not going to let you rob me of this day. Now, in a moment, we will talk about those individuals that really wish life, life would come to an end and death would come and kind of end this teeter-tottering sense of inevitability that is tormenting or ends the pain and the torment and the complications or discomforts. But in light of what we're currently talking about is those individuals that say, I, I've just got to make the best or the most of this life, um, you have to actively seek out what you can seek out. Now, a lot of individuals that are in the elderly phase of this life have not totally grown up with the computer and internet worlds that the younger generations definitely already have incorporated in their life. It is really advisable to get someone that will come to your house and assist you with your computer or your, or your devices, including your phones, your FaceTime, your, your Google chat, all these things that sound kind of alien to individuals that didn't grow up on these type of opportunities. But the reason it's so important to get someone to help you with those sorts of things is because there's a whole world out there to be connected with, even if you are chair-bound or bed-bound, 
that will keep you in a sense of being in the loop of what society and the world of human beings is doing actively. Not only that, but there are ways to be of assistance, even from the passiveness of a comfortable chair that holds you comfortably or a bed that holds you comfortably so that you can be of assistance to other individuals, words of encouragement, ideas, insights, information, even donations, but beware. And so the elderly have been on more occasion taken advantage of because they just clearly did not understand that someone was scamming them because they came to the belief that everybody would be kind hearted. <laughs> and that is a shock. And another aspect of what happens to the elderly is realizing that they are now also very vulnerable to the onset of people trying to take advantage of them. Now, once again, we're still trying to get in contact with Bernie Siegel. He may have encountered uh, some sort of glitch or some sort of uh, emergency of his own since he is a physician. And we completely respect his time. He has been on our show a couple other times. And knowing the information, having read all of his books, one of the things that he does recommend is staying completely engaged and knowing at all times how you can benefit others. That this random act of kindness, even though there are individuals that will scam and take advantage, like mentioned before, but these random acts of kindness truly do keep you in touch to how you are very vitally important to this world, no matter how strong or how weak you are. And those random acts of little kindness, a thank you, a look, a, a call, a note, yeah, even the snail mail is oh, you know, email. Again, get the technology of, of individuals who can help you get linked into the world of people you can stay connected to so that you can create a sense of cheer. Now, here's another aspect of what goes on when people are dying. We very rarely think about this when we're in the middle of dying. But as we are dying, we are actually being watched to some degree by the people that are around us that are either at a distance or close by watching our death process. And I guess that you really have to consider how your legacy of your teaching them how to die is impacting them. Now, this is very different. For example, when, when a husband and wife have a child, they try to teach the child how to walk, how to talk, how to behave, how to be civilized. A mother and a father together very consciously try to teach a child all sorts of uh, information. And we forget that we're teaching our child also about death. And in fact, when people come into my office and say, so-and-so is going to die in our family, we're very concerned about our child and the impact, and we're thinking we should hide the fact that this person's dying or keep our child away from that person so that they don't have to be so closely associated to the process of death. And I personally and professionally think that that's really a huge mistake. And it's a mistake that comes out of our society that really believes on some level that death is something that we should pretend or hide or be ashamed of or embarrassed about because it's just so traumatic. And clearly dying and the loss of love and the sense of endings is, it has its own variation of trauma. There is no question about it. However, in the trauma, there's sadness and there's depression, but there's also love. Because remember that your child or you uh, or, or the individuals that you love the pain of the departure, the pain of the loss is in part because of love and attachment. 
So to celebrate that, gee, I'm in pain over the potential of losing this person because I have loved so much or because I have attached so deeply or because they mattered to me to whatever degree. And if, if I didn't feel the pain, then it would probably mean that I had kept a very convenient and safe distance from that person, not really connected to them. Now, that doesn't mean you have to always feel pain because you can also move on with your life and celebrate that you're moving on with your life even though someone is not able to move on with their, their physical life on, 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 at this earth time. So that as a consequence, you are recognizing I am teaching these other people about death the same way I would teach them about marriage, about money, about behaving, about civilization, about political decisions. I'm teaching them about the process of facing death. Now, your own process of facing death may be filled with anxiety and worry. Absolutely understand that. And if it is associated to the fear and worry of who's going to take care of me, who's going to take care of my estate, what monies do I have left, all those are real everyday issues that actually, if those are the pragmatic concerns that you're facing associated to death, then those are the pragmatic issues that you want to, in life, be able to start taking care of. We have another caller, and I'm hoping it will be Bernie Siegel. Hello, this is Dr. Carol Francis. This is Dr. Bernie Siegel. Yes, dear, it is. Oh, I love hearing that sound of your voice. <laughs> All right. Welcome. Let, let me, can I, uh, as an aside, a bit of information. The other number you gave requires a second number. To, okay. To, go in that's oh. why people may be having trouble you don't supply a second number okay this line goes right into the program okay very good well Bernie since we're right in the middle of the program and we have been talking about death and dying and how to deal with that what have you been your thoughts since I asked you to please grace us with your wisdom since well since it I mean I have written poems and other things in one in one I called Death, what a great teacher you are about life. And mm. that death is like a graduation. So you don't call a graduation a termination, even though you're mm. finished with school. You call it a commencement. Mm. So for me, death is a beginning. And, mm. well, and to describe, uh, and then I'll get into my personal life, um, William Saroyan wrote a story about the man on the flying trapeze, and he sees it as a trapeze to heaven and to God. Hmm. Wow. And this poor guy, starving, you know, homeless, lies down on the bed, and the last words in the story are, he becomes dreamless, unalive, and perfect. Wow. And that's what death is. You see, people who are blind, when they have a near-death experience, see. I mean, there are books written about these many stories. And now... This is a common topic, you know, and even doctors yeah. are writing about it to say, hey, it ain't the brain and it ain't crazy people. It really happened. And mm -hmm. for me, what made it easy, as this may sound strange, you're four years old. There are carpenters working in the house. <clears throat> they put nails in their mouths in those days. Didn't yeah. have all the, you know, equipment. And so I'm sitting in my bedroom home from school with a cold or, well, not school yet. Um, but home with a cold, and I started imitating the workman. I unscrewed the dial on a telephone I had, a toy telephone, and uh, 
that certainly was not a very good way to make a toy telephone. But I put the pieces <laughs> in my mouth to imitate the men, and I aspirated them and was choking to death. Oh, no. And I can tell you it's one of the most painful things to ever experience. When oh, your yeah. body is sucking as hard as it can, every mm-hmm. rib and muscle and diaphragm, I mean, they were, the pain was incredible. And yes. then suddenly I was free of pain and feeling fine. Uh, and I realized you're not in your body anymore. You're mm-hmm. dead. Now remember, I'm four years old, and I'm looking at my body. See, the thing that always fascinated me, whenever I talked about this, it was the boy on the bed was dying. That wasn't me anymore. Mm-hmm. Just the way I spoke about it. See, me was fine. I'm out of my body. And I can remember all, you know, all the thoughts I went through that I'm sorry my parents will find me dead, but this is more fun in a sense and more interesting than being alive and in your body. Oh, and wow. believe me, I did a lot of children's surgery and kids who had experienced near death uh, will say the same thing. I felt bad my parents will find me dead. The first words out of my mouth when I didn't die, who did that? I was mad as hell. Oh, wow. I didn't die because I had decided, okay, I prefer death. I mean, my sense was I'm not in charge of the schedule. God decides. So Mm. you can't fight that. But Mm. what happened, why I didn't die, I have an angel, see, and he performed a Heimlich maneuver. The Mm. kid on the bed had a seizure, an agonal seizure, and vomited. Mm. And when you think about it, vomiting is now doing the opposite. It's pushing things out instead of trying to suck air in. And so all these pieces came flying out, and the kid on the bed took a breath, and it was like a vacuum cleaner. You know, I'm back in, and that's when I'm yelling, who did that? I was mad as hell. My mother came in, (laughs) um, and uh, there was no time for an interesting conversation when she saw what was going on and the vomit and knew something terrible had happened. Um, And I thought, as a four-year-old, this is a common occurrence. There's no point in discussing it with everybody. Everybody must know this happens. Wow. You know? And it never occurred to me, uh, like more recently, father of a four-year-old thought the kid was nuts with the experience he had uh, after dying. You know, the things he described, the people he met. um, But when the father listened to the truth in what his four-year-old was saying, they ended up writing a book about it. Heaven is for real. I think it was a title. Oh, yeah. Oh, Um, I know this well. Yeah. But for me, many years ago, I never, you know, thought of it as a problem or something you needed to discuss with anybody. Um, Mm. And it's about the consciousness that survives. That's Mm. really the most important part of us is our consciousness because that's what's immortal. And Mm. what I also know is from another crazy experience, and believe me, I never looked for any of these things. They just happened Mm. to me. Mm -hmm. Um, A friend of mine was talking to me, and I was telling her all the things I was doing, and she said, Bernie, why are you living this life? Because she wanted me to, you know, slow down and take a rest. And I Mm. said to her, oh, my God. She said, what is it? I said, I just went into a trance, and I saw myself with a sword in my hand killing people and their animals. 
I mean, it it just it was in, the way I descri- try to get people to understand. It's like watching a movie in which you are one of the actors. Uh. That's the only way I can get across to people what it felt like to watch yourself doing these things. But my sense was, and I said this to my friend after a few minutes when I was just in this trance, that um, maybe that's why I'm a surgeon, you know, to help people with a knife. And a couple of weeks later, I spontaneously went into a trance when flying across the country. You know, I just relaxed, looking out the window, and the movie went up again. And yeah. Then it was in incredible detail, and I learned so much that I went for therapy. I mean it literally. I, yeah. I went to see the Jungian therapist James Hillman because I uh. said to him, this is what I've experienced. Now, one of the interesting things, you see, he got across to me. I was a knight. The lord of the castle told me to kill the neighbor's daughter because he was offending him over mm. some property. I oh, said, dear. why don't I go kill him? Why kill his daughter? No, I want to punish him. I said, well, what if I don't do it? Then I'll kill you. I said, all right, I'm going. And I killed her. Mm. Now, I shared, and believe me, I cried for hours. I shared this with mm. him, and he said, Bernie, do you hear what you're saying? I said, what do you mean? You keep saying your lord. I said, yeah, it's the lord of the castle. He said, no, Bernie, it's your lord. You need to relive mm. this. And... Mm. That's when I said, you know, I've always been bothered by Abraham, who didn't say to God, why don't you take me and leave my kid alone? Yes. Um, (laughs) Or why didn't Jesus jump off the cross and say, okay, now you see who I am and what I can do? (laughs) Pay attention. Yeah. I mean, they, as a member of the clergy said, they feared separation from God. Mm. That's why they did what they did, you Mm. see. Whereas I feared for my life. And not separated from my Lord. And when I went to relive it, I was told, I said, yes, I'll do it. He said, I was just testing your faith. Go and bring them here so we can resolve this problem. Mm, And the resolution was my marrying the daughter. Ah. And what they were fighting over was our gift, the land. So there was nothing to fight over anymore. It was all family. And... um, Oh, it, it's. I, I won't get into more details because it gets too personal. And what a beautiful! But um, I really think it's a big part of my life today. We've been rescuing pets, uh, becoming a doctor. I mean, I, I, I one of my latest books was called "Love Animals and Miracles," and I talk about the Seagull mm-hmm. Zoo. I mean, it just you know, it's like why. Do you have a house full of creatures and a yard full of creatures? And we're not living on a farm, you know, <laughs> um, and five kids and all the things I was doing. When I had that past life experience, it was like, thank you, I understand myself. Mm-hmm. And another that's even more interesting, in the 1970s, I shaved my head. I had mm-hmm. to. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, I assumed it was part of the uncovering of all my feelings because a portrait I did of myself shows me in a cap mask and gown. You don't even know it's me as a surgeon. Mm. When, mm. when I, when the family and our pets got tired of posing for me, I said, oh, I'll, I'll paint myself. Well, you didn't paint yourself. You know what I mean? You painted your sickness, which was burying all your pain and troubles. And then along came the seventies when our kids 
had their hair down to their shoulders, and that included the boys. And I said, I got to shave my head. Oh, Dad, please. You know, you embarrass us enough already. Don't do that. Even the barber said they had called him and told him if he shaved my head, they'd kill him. But I got him to shave my head by lying to him and saying I'm going to leave town. So hmm. nobody will know I shaved it. So Friday evening, he shaved my head. Hmm. And um, everybody who met me, including my wife, shrieked, you know, what I had done. But hmm. two interesting things. One, at the hospital, everybody lined up to talk to me because hmm. they knew I had a problem or I wouldn't have done that. So they hmm. could share their problem with me. Um, what's his name? Thornton Wilder wrote it very well. An angel refuses to heal a doctor and says to him, without your wound, where would your power be? It's your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. Oh, and boy, that touched me. And yeah. the doctor learns the truth in what the angel tells him because when he turns and walks away, being denied healing, everybody in town is yelling, come over here, come in here, <laughs> you know, to talk mm. to him. But mm. years later, because uh, I still have the shaved head, um, I was reading works by Jung. And he talked about a myth in which the hero's head is shaved. And he oh, goes wow. on to say, it's what monks do called a tonsure, T-O-N-S-U-R-E, and it is symbolic of uncovering their spirituality. See? Wow. And when I read that, it was like, oh, boy, thank you, Carl Jung. Hmm. Now I understand. Uncovering hmm. skin, if you know what I mean, yeah. wasn't the issue, but uncovering what is within you. Um, and, and, and believe me, that wasn't the only place. Elizabeth Kubler also also studied Jungian stuff. I drew mm -hmm. a picture for her. Bernie, yeah, what are you covering up? I said, what are you talking about? You have a white piece of paper. You took a white crayon to make snow on a mountain. It's already white. You don't need the crayon. You added a layer. What are you covering up? And boy, it came at me from all sides, you know, that mm -hmm. to uncover. And I really feel that Life is a school in a sense, that we're all here to live and learn, and that if we can raise our level of consciousness, then someday the world will be a really nice place to live, yeah. you know, versus what's going on now. And mm -hmm. that will include loving the children um, and loving life. So mm -hmm. you do what is life-enhancing. And I may add... In another book we have called The Book of Miracles, you know, people keep sending us all kinds of stories, and I put them together with comments. But in reading them, I thought one evening, uh, you know, going through all of them, I thought there's something in common with all these people. Hmm. They chose life. What I mean by yeah. that is I place before you life and death, good and evil, choose life. By hmm. choosing life, they were choosing what is life-enhancing for not just themselves, see, that would be good, but for all of creation. And when they made that kind of choice, then the so-called coincidences happened. Um, but they're not coincidences. See, again, mm -hmm. back to my friend Jung, um, 
Yeah, because I called myself a Jungian surgeon. I got it. Um, um, (laughs) He said, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. Now, if you think that's something, listen Mm -hmm. to this that was said thousands of years before him. It is done unto you as you believe. Now, Mm -hmm. who said that? Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know? And that's the part, you see, that always gets me. I say to people, look for common themes. If you hear the same thing from a variety of people, then it must work or they wouldn't all be saying it. Hmm. So, yeah, I find things in myths, fairy tales, novels, songs, where the person creating it has seen the experience consciously or unconsciously knows the truth and writes about it, see? Mm-hmm. One, um, just to give you an example that helped change me, because Brian Weiss, who's written about past lives and things, uh, he was a student at Yale and always loved working in the operating room with me while he was a student because wow. I wasn't a normal surgeon, see? So he was going to go into psychiatry and loved being in the operating room with me. But mm. when he got into this work, I said, Brian, look, Parents will tell me that their child died, and five years later, the child shows up. And sometimes to save their life. I mean this literally. You're driving down a parkway. You hear your son say, Mom, slow down. And this particular boy loved pigeons. A pigeon lands in the driveway, I mean in the parkway in front of her, so she had to slow down. When she came around the turn, there was a sheet of ice and innumerable cars all piled up. Now, you see, my comment to Brian is, Brian, I mean, how can I believe that? The kid died five years ago, so what is he, a bum? Why isn't he back in school now? What's he doing talking to me? <laughs> and Brian always used to say to me, Bernie, there's no time when you're out of your body. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, it was just not something I could get a concept of. How could that be true? Yeah. And mm-hmm. then the musical Carousel mm-hmm. by... Uh, was it Rod- Hammerstein and, and Rogers? Um, I'm watching it, and a man is killed. He's in a robbery and he's shot, um, and then he has an angel showing him around. And one day in the film, the angel says to him, "Hey, you want to see your kid graduate from high school?" What? My kid is a baby. When I got, you know, when I died. What do you mean graduating from high school? Mm-hmm. And then the angel in the show says. There's no time up here. Where does that come from with two people writing a musical, you know? Interesting, yeah. Yeah. So when I heard that, though, then I accepted it as total truth Hmm. because, you know, it's coming from another level of consciousness. And I'd Mm -hmm. say again to people, quiet your mind. The symbol I always use is the still pond that – <clears throat> the ugly duckling knows he's a swan. The tiger raised by goats is shown he's really a tiger. Where? In the still pond, like a mirror. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. see your truth. But when your intellectual mind, like mine was, is, oh, how can it be? There's no time. You don't see the truth. But when you quiet your mind, then the truth is reflected back at you. So I always mm-hmm. say to people, live by your experience not by your beliefs, so that you have an open mind 
not filled with thinking, uh, to quote an attorney, if I may, I always say being an attorney is a serious illness, but <laughs> this attorney sent me an article he wrote, and it said, in the midst of a tragedy, so he was trying to decide what to do. He said, I came to a conclusion that was eminently reasonable, totally logical, and completely wrong. Because mm-hmm. while learning to think, I almost forgot how to feel. So let your heart make up your mind. You know, get into that other place, not thinking. And for men, it's a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all, you know, for engineers, if you know what I mean, if you're into yeah. numbers and measuring, and it, yeah, it's mm-hmm. hard to let go. Mm-hmm. I, I had one male engineer who I asked him to draw me a picture, and he handed me a full page of written instructions on how to draw his picture. Mm-hmm. And I burst out laughing. I asked him to draw a picture, but like that attorney, he wrote the instructions. That woke him up. I may say that was very therapeutic because he realized, wow, where at, what am I, you know, what am mm-hmm. I doing if, if that's how I respond? And so it changed him and his life. And I know mm-hmm. other attorneys, too, who have found my books and used bookstores while their cars being fixed, and they have changed their lives, and their yeah. diseases disappeared. So it has multiple levels of benefit. That when your body knows you're loving your life, it does all it can to keep you alive. Mm. And when it knows that Monday morning you hate what you're doing and you can't stand the traffic. And, yeah, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses on Monday morning. So, again, love your life, love your body, and amazing things can happen. It's the Mm. potential. Pretty, do you think... Let me give you one more sentence, then I'll I'll take a breath. Ernest Holmes, (laughs) I was reading him, and he wrote, what if Jesus was the only normal person who ever lived? I love that sentence because, again, he's talking about our potential. So don't be afraid of failing. You know, what you've heard from parents, school teachers, others. Don't be afraid of failure. Give it a shot. See what you're capable of. Accept your mortality and go for life. Yeah. Do you think that it's just practically impossible for people who do not believe in life after death to be at ease with death? Is it inevitable that the only way to not feel anxious or panicked about death is faith? Well, I mean, you can say, I can't believe anything he's saying. You'll you'll find out I'm right, you know, when you die. <laughs> but um, you know, because as crazy as it sounds, you know, years ago I had a mystic, uh, and then I'll get back to what you're asking, uh, who was one of my patients, and she came in one day and said, "I've learned you're not a normal doctor." So I asked, <laughs> "Are there any messages for Bernie?" And then she brought me a message from a doctor friend who had just died. Oh wow! And when I called his wife. To say, I don't know if you want to hear this, but I have a message from Frank. She said, it's all right. Go ahead. And after I said it, she was shrieking. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, I said, I mm-hmm. don't want to. She said, you're not upsetting me. That's exactly mm-hmm. what he said when he'd walk out of your groups. Oh, wow. And part of it was, <laughs> I can't buy the package, you know. And, and, so, and this mystic friend of mine 
um, she calls me regularly. And right. she doesn't know what's going on in my life. I mean, when when my mother died, she called me to say my folks are together again. Mm-hmm. And every now and then when I'm worn out and doing too much, she'll call and say, Bernie, your parents are concerned about you. Please take care. I mean, I even give her phone number to people to say, call her. She'll get in touch with your loved one for you. Mm-hmm. Wow. She is absolutely amazing. But again, I can't deny which she did, you know, and has done. Mm-hmm. So my mind is open. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see, you don't have to be afraid of death. It's, you have to keep your power, okay? My father said to my mother one day, I need to get out of here. She said, Bernie, Dad wants to get out of bed. I said, Mom, he's talking about his body. Mm-hmm. He's scared yeah. of his body. Yeah. And my mother didn't fight with him it's okay so he picked the day he was going to die and won't get into all the details but he died laughing looking wonderful surrounded by loved ones see Absolutely. no failure no loser mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. another woman who was brain dead for two years tube fed very similar to the Shivo case i wish yeah. i had been able to talk to her husband he wouldn't have had any trouble um and one of her children was a doctor who called me, and she said, look, we can't take it anymore. We want to let her go, mm-hmm. but hospice won't accept her because they say if we pull her tube and bring her there, we're murdering her. Oh, so my god! They goodness. will not let us take her feeding tube out. I said, I will take it out, and then you take her there, and I did. And wow. when they arrived, however, the attorney said, oh, no, no, no. You know, I know what you're doing. We won't take her without a tube. I said, bring her back to the hospital. And they did. And I came over a few hours later when I was done in the office. I told them to meet me there. Hmm. And I said, tell your mother that it's okay for her to go, that her love will stay with you. Hmm. And they all started crying. Hmm. So I went over to her bed and I said, your family is all around the bed that you're lying in. Mm -hmm. I want you to know that it's all right for you to go. And they want you to know that. And that your love will stay with them. Fifteen minutes later, she died. Yes. And people have to realize that, you know, if you have the will to live, fine. Go ahead. Keep it up. You know. Whether it's eating vegetables, having operations, it doesn't matter. If you say, yeah, I want to keep alive, then look into all the things that can help you heal and work mm-hmm. at it. But if you're tired of your body, and there comes a time where I'd say that is true. You know, part of my morning mantra is, yes, I love my life, my body, my pets, my family. But there may be a day I don't love my body anymore. Yeah. And I can say, okay, let's go. And Tell everybody in the family, see, and all the loved ones who can get there will show up and surround you, and when you're ready, you can go. And again, about consciousness, we called people and notified them. My father was going to die on Sunday. He picked that day. You see, again, he picked the day. This was yeah. Thursday when he said, I need to get out of here. He said, all right, I'll die Sunday. Um, so we called everybody and said, Grandpa's dying on Sunday. Who's coming? Who can make it? And we had a list. And 
he didn't die until the last person on the list walked in the door. Wow. A couple of minutes after that, he left. Now, you'd say, how does he know? Again, I'd say that is no coincidence that he stayed alive until the last grandchild walked in the door and was announced. Then Mm -hmm. he took his last breath. Mm -hmm. And those are things I've seen. Look, I've played games in the operating room. What I mean by games. You have a patient with an illness he could recover from, you know, not a potentially fatal illness, dying Mm -hmm. on the operating table. And after working with Elizabeth Kugler-Ross and her spirits and all these things, I figured, what have I got to lose? Because the anesthesiologist said, I can't get his heart going again. So I said Hmm. his name, you know, like, Fred, it's not your time yet. Come on back. Hmm. And his heart started beating again. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, the anesthesiologist was heading out of the operating room to go get, you know, a stretcher to put him on to take his body to the morgue. And I say, it's not your time yet. Come on back. And his heart started beating and he recovered. Now, yeah. you know, is it a coincidence? I don't know. But what mm-hmm. I found fascinating is one of the medical students who was helping me with the surgery said later, no, that's not what happened. It didn't happen. He couldn't accept it, see? I mean, the anesthesiologist said to me, Bernie, I like working with you. See, for him, it it was real. He saw it happen. Yeah. But the medical student, it was just too much for him to deal with and say it happened. And that's the sad part again. There are college professors at Yale, one of whom changed the results of a graduate student's study of our cancer patients because he said it can't be true, meaning Mm. that their survival from coming to groups and dealing with life issues was much better than the control group. He Mm. said that can't be true, changed the control group. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the student made everything come out even. And then, of course, I was criticized, say, uh, you see, your work doesn't mean anything. But again, what is is fascinating is when people set out to prove what I was doing was wrong and it came out the other way, see? In other words, there's a psychiatrist, David Spiegel, out in California who thought I was nuts, you know? So he set up groups of women with breast cancer and worked with them the way I was, you know, helping them deal with life issues and other things. And what happened at the end of his study there were women in the therapy group who were still alive and well. And the mm. control group, everybody had died. Mm. Now, he didn't hide the figures. They were saying, well, mm. there must be something screwed up here. He mm. said, hey, look, here's the truth. you got to admire him for that. Yeah. And there are others. See, it's more often the psychiatrists who see this, who working with AIDS patients years ago before there was treatment, immune-competent personality. Uh, Dr. George Solomon came up with that, see? And it's how you behave with life. So all of this, if if you study actors, which has been done, if you're in a tragedy, your immune function goes down, stress hormone levels go up. So actually acting is bad for your health in that kind of setup. But if you're in a comedy, you know, what I call a Mel Brooks show, hey, you're going to have a wonderful time and be healthier (laughs) Then, huh. you know, if you were not in the show, and I may <laughs> add, cancer patients, a study done, who laugh for no apparent reason every three <laughs> hours or so 
has mm. a better survival rate than those in the control group who are not told to laugh for no reason. Yeah. So, you know, anybody la- listening, you want to feel better? See, you're, you're feared of death? Laugh. Because yep. that's something I learned, too, in the operating room, that if I got people to laugh, they couldn't be afraid. I mean that literally. You, you cannot be afraid when you're laughing. Mm-hmm. You know, we have laughter, yoga, and all kinds of things. But I, I found by acting what I call childlike and silly, um, people would burst out laughing as well as everybody in the operating room who knew I was kind of a nutcase. Mm-hmm. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, things I would do and say, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they knew it was to the benefit of the patient. So when everybody started laughing, I always said, we became family, you know, and then there was nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it it just doesn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. And you feel so much better um, unless you work at worrying again. But when mm-hmm. you're laughing, the fear is gone. And mm-hmm. fear is See, fear is useful when your life is being threatened. I mean, a poisonous snake, a rabid dog, somebody standing there with a gun uh, who's going to shoot you. Yeah, you're damn right. Fear is useful because you may be able, you know, to leap higher, run faster, do things physically that you never could do before when you weren't afraid. And again, that that those physiological studies have been done showing what happens to your blood flow, muscles, uh, all kinds of things when you're in fear. But if you stay in fear, see, that that's the emotional aspect. If every day I'm afraid of dying, I'm afraid of dying, then it wears you out. Then, yeah. then it starts to hurt you. But if, you know, your car is in an accident and you're maneuvering and doing things and protecting yourself in many ways, yeah, then fear is appropriate. But if every time you get in your car, oh, I could have another accident today, you're hurting yourself. Hmm. Yes, Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like living the drama of your own imagination and dying by your own imagination. (laughs) And that's why I say when you study actors, you realize it – changes you physiologically it's not just a mental exercise your chemistry is changed by your emotions see that's what gives the body the message i mean your genes don't decide your immune system doesn't decide your body chemistry talks to it so relationships help you to survive you know women live longer than men with the same cancer married men longer than single men um, and again, it's about the chemistry within you. Even having a dog at home leads yeah. to improved survival after a heart attack. You know, and again, yeah. when studies are done, petting a dog changes bonding hormones and things of that sort. Like my sense of humor, because the study, 37% of women in this study said the man they married, they met walking their dog. So I always mm. say to women, if you're looking to get married, get a dog first. <laughs> go for a walk with it. Yeah, because I, mean thought, yeah, my wife, it's funny, <laughs> she has a good sense of humor because she knows uh, I talk to a lot of women when I walk our dogs, and um, she'll say when I come home, honey, did you meet anybody today? <laughs> <laughs> She's checking on the competition. Yeah, right. Oh, that's hilarious. You know, you said, if I could just amend something, you said, you know, you wish people would live by their experience instead of by their mind or their thinking. 
mm-hmm. uh, because the thinking can sabotage or limit your ability to tap into what our conscious knows. But those individuals who are really riddled by fear, anxiety, panic, the, the, the chronic obsession with the anticipation of dying, uh, which is very different than making plans to death, they're living right. by their experience, but they're immersed in very dark experience. Um, and yep. so it, you're, it sounds like you're almost saying, if that's the experience you're having and you don't want it, then you need to groom these alternate experiences. Right. What do you think about what I'm saying? You what would reprogram you reprogram yourself. I mean, let me say it on a practical level that I would okay. do with people. See, okay. I mean, I could say to somebody, draw yourself dying. And some people will literally draw a gorgeous picture with God and family and love. Oh, I mean, you know, the purple kite going up in the sky, all kinds of beautiful symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, others will draw a horrible scene, all in red and black. See? And now as a surgeon, this happens too if I say, draw yourself in the operating room. And it looks horrible. It's a black box. There's not another human being in the picture. You're lying on a table. I say, what I want you to do, so this is whether it's about surgery or death, is see it happening three or four times a day. Quiet your Mm. mind, picture it happening the way you want it to happen, Mm. with love and peace and free of pain, etc. And then a week later, I say, draw me a picture. And it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's totally different. Because, Mm. see, the body believes what the mind has created. So mind and body now are at peace with that coming event. Mm-hmm. And you have reprogrammed yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are things. You see, the real problem comes from your parents. Why do I say that? Because if they have the negative view, they hypnotize you. They, You're a failure. You can't handle Well, a quote from a woman. My mother's words were eating away at me and maybe gave me cancer. Archie. I asked another woman, can you show me a picture of yourself as a child so I can show you you're worth something? She said, I don't have any. My parents are real estate agents. You want to see the house? I mean, I could go on telling you more stories, but some of these people, well, let me give you the exact words of someone. The okay. doctor told her she was going to die. Um and her parents were alcoholics, committed suicide, told their children to kill themselves, too. She's oh. the only one alive from her family. Gosh. She said, I had no control over the parents who raised me or the circumstances I was exposed to. But when I let love into my prison, it changed every negative item in it, meaning the experiences in my life, and turned them into something meaningful. Mm. And she's alive today. Mm. And believe me, it's got to be 30 or 40 years later. And mm-hmm. I knew her, you know, after she was told she was going to die, I met her, and she was one of the most angry people in the world. The wow. rage at her parents, at her life, at her abuse. Um, and another important lesson, I didn't know what to do for her. So I sat and listened. And subsequently, mm-hmm. I learned from Helen Keller that deafness is darker by far than blindness. You sit there and listen to people, and they tell you, thank you, you've been a big help. Yeah. And all you did was sit there going, oh, my God, mm, oh, wow. But, see, they hear themselves. 
and then they know what they need to do, mm-hmm. like she did, let love in. But mm-hmm. if I hadn't sat there being a surgeon and, and not knowing what the hell to do for her, mm-hmm. um, she wouldn't have healed herself. Mm-hmm. If somebody, like so often, oh, yes, yeah, I see, here, take this pill. Yeah. That doesn't solve anything. Mm-hmm. You know, too often doctors treat the disease and the diagnosis and not the person's experience. Mm-hmm. That's real tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I used to test it at home with my family too. You know, when the kids would have a problem, uh, I'd say, uh, okay, this is what you need to do. And the, invariably their reaction was, Dad, you are no help. When oh. I would listen to them for 20 minutes while they whined and complained, they would say at the end, thank you, thanks. And why? Because they knew what they needed to do. Yeah, I, I listened to one woman. I had to laugh when we were done. For an hour and a half, I never said a word. You know, I mean, you'd mumble, say, yeah, mm-hmm, mm, oh, my. Mm. And at the end of an hour and a half, she said, that is the most incredible conversation I've had with anyone. And I burst out <laughs> laughing. And she looks at me like, what are you laughing about? I didn't say a word. You know what I yeah. mean? You were talking to yourself. And now you're giving mm-hmm. me credit. Yeah. And I deserve it because I listen. Mm-hmm. But uh, Helen Keller has always been a teacher of mine. Um, <clears throat> you know, she was never, uh, she was such a spiritual, wonderful lady, as they said, teaching me about the value of listening, uh, teaching, again, the disease, you know, all the things that happened to her. God is not punishing her. She saw it as what she called chastisement, which was really teaching, learning, disciplining, like God was her coach, if you know what I mean. He might have given her things, but it was to learn from. And that's Mm -hmm. where religion becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean it literally. Uh, Way back when I started studying religion so I could understand the people I was taking care of and how they felt, I came across a statement that in 1826, Pope Leo XII declared that if you vaccinated yourself against smallpox, you are no longer a child of God and you will not go to heaven because God decides who gets smallpox. Oh, my gosh. Now, that's hard to believe that a pope would say that mm-hmm. instead of saying, oh, look what God gave us to save everybody. You see, Maimonides put it well and helped me. He said, disease is a loss of health, so if you find what your neighbor's lost, return it. <laughs> that's a healthier way of looking at it rather than God is punishing you, but... Uh, Billy Graham, in his newspaper column, answered a gentleman who said, I know I'm not you know, a perfect person, I've done things, but does God want me to have cancer? My immediate reaction as I was reading was, no. Billy Graham's first two words in his answer was, not necessarily. Hmm. Now, I thought, what are you talking about? Hmm. You see, how you can impose the guilt now. Yeah. And what he was basically saying was, Sometimes you forget about God because everything's going well in your life. So it's like God gives you a knock on the head, say, hey, come on back. I mean, uh, that's why I like it's a loss of health. It's not God, you know, punishing or picking on you or doing something to you. Do you think that the inevitability of dying is a uh, postscript that God puts in there and says, look at, you know, if you don't find me during your life, at least in Considering death, I might knock on your door and you might listen. I mean, yeah, I think when you look at 
you know, the fact that you're here for a limited amount of time, then enjoy your yeah. lifetime. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of, of things I, to share. One, I love the comment from Woody Allen and something he wrote, that there's this totally depressed guy who's rambling on and on to his friend <laughs> about this horrible, bleak life. And his friend says, what are you doing Saturday night? And the guy says, I'm committing suicide. And what does mm-hmm. his friend say? How about Friday night? And I loved that <laughs> when I read that. Okay? Because, I mean, I was a police surgeon in New Haven, Connecticut. And the policeman called me one day and said, I'm committing suicide. Now, I don't know what he was looking for. You know, oh, I love you. Don't do it. I figured none of that stuff is going to make any difference. That he He called for a reason, I know. But I said to him, Jimmy, you commit suicide. I will never talk to you again. <laughs> Guess who came crashing into our office 15 minutes later? Oh. I thought he was going to throw me out the window. Oh, no. He's a former professional football player. I mean, he's yeah. a big, enormous guy. And I thought, Siegel, you think it's, you know, you, that you did something, but you're in big trouble. Because mm-hmm. he came running in, screaming at me for being an insensitive, uncaring, stupid, you know, how could you talk to, I got a gun oh. in my mouth, I'm going to blow my brains out, look what you said. I said, did you notice what? You're not dead. Then mm-hmm. it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The look on his face was, oh, you smart ass. You did that on purpose. <laughs> And I can tell you, we were friends for life after that, Um, you know, but um, it's, again, that kind of thing. So I often say to people at workshops at other times, if you had 15 minutes to live, what would you do? Hmm. And, you know, at first they used to think, oh, yeah, you call your loved ones. Isn't that not wonderful? And then one day a guy said, oh, I go play golf. I thought, what? 15 Hmm. minutes, you're going to play golf? And one of our sons said, Oh, I buy a quart of chocolate ice cream and eat it. So I said to him, you're okay. And the guy who you know, talked about golf said, excuse me, what is it? What if the golf is my chocolate ice cream? Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, today I appreciate the people who say these crazy things they would do for 15 minutes versus, yeah. oh, I'll call everybody. What the hell you want to be on the phone for the last 15 minutes of your life for? You know? mm-hmm. And the other I would recommend to everybody is do something real. Do something mm-hmm. that makes a difference for somebody else's life. Mm-hmm. I know that feeling. You know, whether it's writing a book that helps millions of people or saving a life, you know, mm-hmm. resuscitating somebody. But when you walk away from that moment, it's an incredible feeling mm-hmm. that I've done something real. I have mm-hmm. helped another human being. And to me, well, to make, I mean, many authors have said this. Love is immortal and makes all things immortal. There's a land of the living and the land of the dead, and the bridge is love, the only survival, the only meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, if you want to live forever, love somebody. That will yeah. never leave them. Um, mm-hmm. And the other is from Mother Teresa that I found agreed with me in a sense. She was asked to attend an anti-war rally. And she said to the people who came to invite her to be a speaker that she would not attend. And they just were shocked and started to leave. 
And she said, however, if you ever have a peace rally, call me. And that's what I'm trying to get people to understand. Find peace in your life. Work at healing your life. Stop fighting the enemy, whether it's disease or people or anything else. Become a love warrior. And I mean that literally, that your weapon is love. And it drives people crazy when you say, I love you. You know, in the midst of their anger, say, I love you. And suddenly it's like, oh, what do I do now with him? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, because it came out of an article where somebody said you could be a lover or a warrior. But I thought he's missed the point. You can be a love warrior. That when people are screaming at you, yelling at you, just say, I love you. And I've seen, I mean, one of the things I say now is do it for three months. Pick somebody, you know, who's driving you nuts and call them and say, I love you. Every day for three months, then skip a day. Guess what happens? This one young woman said she came out of the house late for work one day with alcoholic abusive parents that she had said, I love you too, every day for three months. And she's always telling me it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter. And then she came in to me that day and said, hey, this morning I was late for work. I ran out of the house to get to work. My parents are in the street screaming, you forgot something. She -hmm. said, I got all my stuff. What is it? You didn't say I love you today. And she Mm -hmm. said, we all had, uh, you know, crying, hugging, an incredible moment in the street that changed their relationship. Absolutely. In in the midst of teaching us how to be warriors of love, is there is do you think it's too guilt oriented to say to people, look, you're dying. Can you teach the rest of us how to die? Because we talk a lot about teaching people to do this, that, and the other, but yeah. how to how to die is you know that's a seriously complicated university that we don't really get certificates well, from. <laughs> life is the complicated school. Oh, I guess. But um, it's if you live, it's not hard to die. And and to understand, there are many ways. I mean, I would tell, and I knew my mother, for instance. She's not going to die with the kids in the room. See, my father, everything's okay. Everybody could come and be there. But yeah. hey, you know what mothers are like. So Mama yeah. doesn't want to upset her children. She wants to really die without them in the room to make it easier. Yeah. So uh-huh. I would leave the room periodically to let her do that. And yeah. she, of course, did. But I don't mean she was alone. She was with friends. But I knew if I sat there, she'd wait till he goes to the bathroom. And I right. would tell that to parents of the children I operated on who were in you know dangerous situations. I'd say, look, do not feel bad if you go to the hospital cafeteria for lunch and come back and find your do- child died. Or you go home to take a nap and a shower. Your child is making that decision. They think mm-hmm. they're doing you a favor. Okay? Mm-hmm. So don't feel guilty about it. Mm-hmm. See, most people in the hospital die in the middle of the night. Why? Because mm-hmm. the doctor isn't there to stop you because he or she would feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. And your family isn't there to make you feel guilty. Look what I'm doing to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's why I often say to families, when did your loved one die? You know, where were they? Who was mm-hmm. with them? When, 
if they say, well, they died two in the afternoon and, you know, at home or at hospice, we were all sitting with I say, you did it right. See? Mm. But if they say, oh, we died at two in the morning and I was home exhausted, then, you know, they didn't have that kind of relationship where they felt comfortable and safe mm. you know, mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do know you... mothers especially who say, I can't die till you're all married and out of the house. Now, that, <laughs> that can keep oh. a lot of women living. But, you yeah. see, then they lose meaning in their life. The kids yeah. leave home, and boom. So treat yourself as one of your children, if you know what I mean. Love yourself and your life, too. Mm-hmm. Don't just do it for somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of phobias uh, are and anxieties are born out of, ultimately, the fear of death, the fear of flying, the fear of driving, the, the fear mm-hmm. of snakes, the fear of... And so many, I, I find that the core of it is, well, let's talk about your fear of death and they go, Oh, I'm not really afraid to die, but I'm really afraid of this, that, and the other. Why would you be afraid of that? If you weren't afraid to die, it's to keep, you have to keep your power. See, and you know, I'm talking to people also who are making decisions about treatment. Yeah. And you don't let others impose, Oh, you need chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, blah, blah, blah. Hey, you can say, no, I'm not going to have those things. And that's why I often get them, as I said, to draw pictures. Because if, well, like one woman drew the devil giving her poison as her treatment. Boy, you are in for trouble. Hmm. Now, there are also people who drew horrible pictures because they're on a special diet and they hate it. And they'd rather have an operation. So Hmm. I tell them, hey, it's your life. It's okay. Hmm. So it's keeping your power. That it's not somebody else imposing things on you it's keeping your authenticity that's important and uh, as i say when you're tired and get ready to go so you go you know that's your next therapy and i mean that um leaving your body it's it's a chance to be well again to go off and the kids and the animals all understand that you know you're here trying to have a nice day when you can't have a nice day anymore okay Move on. Mm-hmm. Start again. And believe me, that's what will happen. I have seen so many people live their last 10 years of life always thinking that today they may die. What do you think about that? Well, it's a waste of time. I mean, <laughs> see, if it's, not, if it's not productive, if you get up in the morning and say, hey, I could die today, so how am I going to have a nice day? Okay, fine. I, I accept my mortality. That's why a lot of things don't bother me. You know what I mean? I mean, Mm. if I'm going to die, why do I want to waste my time worrying about a lot of things? Mm. So I'm always learning from people like Joseph Campbell and others. Um, You know, if you're going through hell, ask yourself, what am I to learn from this experience? Mm. See, then it changes it. It's not a bad thing. It's what Mm -hmm. I call a labor pain then. And you, you rebirth yourself. But when it's, oh, this is terrible, look what's happening to me, this is awful, why did God do this? Oh, my poor family, that's not survivor behavior. I mean, I've had people with cancers who thought it was time for them to die. See? They come back to the office, no sign of cancer. What happened? One woman's quote, I left my troubles to God. Hmm. Another man I wasn't invited to the funeral. 
because he left Connecticut to go to Colorado to die in the mountains. Hmm. I called the family to say, why didn't you invite me to the funeral? I told you I wanted to come. He answered the phone. And I told him why I called. He said, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. <laughs> Another multimillionaire uh, canceled the dress code at work. No suits, no ties. Who gives a damn if you have a few months to live? And his wife said, and buy that house on the ocean you always wanted. They lived in Miami. So he did. And he sat there meditating, listening to my tapes. We became friends because his son drove me crazy, and I got in touch with the father. See, I knew this was a survivor <laughs> family, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Because the son wouldn't stop pestering me to talk mm. to his father and meet his father. Mm. And he lived for five and a half years after mm. we met instead of dying in two months. Oh, and then one humorous letter I got was, the doctor said I have two months to live. This time I agreed. I felt so bad. So I bought a dog, and I put it in a backyard wildlife habitat, and I laughed more, and I took vitamins, and the letter ends with, and I didn't die, and now I'm so busy, I'm killing myself. Help, where do I go from here? <laughs> now, again, you see, she's accepting death, but what does she do with the time? Live. And that's why I often say to people, pay attention to your dreams and drawings. If choices are coming up in your life, draw pictures of them. What job should I take? Where should I move? Who should I marry? Uh, it, what treatment? It, it doesn't matter. And then the next day, look at the drawings. Why do I say the next day? Because your consciousness takes over and blinds you. Your unconscious does. I've drawn pictures and been amazed at what I drew because I know what you know would look good and impress people and I don't put it in. And I mm. thought, how the hell can I miss that? Well, because your consciousness is blinded. So the next day when you look at the picture, boom, you see the problem. Mm. And believe me, the future is in those two. When you were talking about fear of death, I was wondering if I became a doctor because I was afraid of dying. So now yeah. I'm on the other side of the death, see, where you don't get sick and don't die. Mm -hmm. And boy, I had a, an impressive dream. I'm in a car full of people, and I'm not the driver. And the car goes off a cliff. Ah. And everybody is shrieking and screaming, we're going to die, we're going to this, we're going to that. And I'm sitting there, nice and calm and peaceful. Hmm. And they all look at me like, what the hell's wrong with you? We're going to die. Yeah, okay. They couldn't <laughs> understand why I'm not screaming hmm. and hysterical. But hmm. when I woke up, I realized... Okay, you did it for the right reasons, to help people, say, not to avoid dying, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Yeah. Um, and, and those dreams, boy, you don't forget them. But no. the wisdom is inside. And as I say, I, I always feel, why do you sleep? Mm. To dream, see? Mm. For, to let your body and your psyche, psyche and soma, mind and body, communicate with you. So your thinking brain is turned off. And they can get through now. Yeah. Believe me. I mean, I can pass on dreams. Another book we have is called A Book of Miracles, where you're told you have cancer in a dream. And I was told I didn't have cancer in a dream when I had certain symptoms um, that were scary to other doctors and my partners. And in the dream, I was told, but you don't have cancer from a support group, from people with cancer. Yeah. And I woke up. I knew that they were telling me I don't have it. 
You know, I mm-hmm. mean, I, I had a problem, but it was not due to cancer, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. and the yeah. symptoms and so forth. Yeah. How does, how does mourning, I know you're not a man allergic to sadness or allergic to missing. You have animals and friends and right. family. I, I, so we're talking about facing our own death, but we ha- when we had to face someone else is going to die is also part of this equation. What's yeah. your wisdom on I, that? Yeah. I try to be with them. Mm. And the animals I bury all around our house. Mm. They're always with me. Mm. You know, I'm always getting their love and feeling their love. Mm-hmm. And I may say, uh, you know, people think I'm neurotic by the time we're done, that I hear voices talking to me also. Ah. Like the day my father died, I was asked, while I'm out walking in the street, a voice said, how did your parents meet? I don't know. Ask your mother when you get to the hospital. Wow. That's why my father died laughing, because my mother started telling stories, including that he had lost a coin toss and had to take her out. So (laughs) she went on telling stories, and he ended up dying, looking so healthy. I thought he was going to say, oh, I can't die today. This is fun, you know? But as I said, when the last person arrived, he did. So, again, I hear voices. And just to give you an example, um, the I wrote a book called Buddy's Candle to help people with death. Yeah, I should have thought of that. I wrote this book. Don't let me forget to tell you the theme of it. But okay. I write the book Buddy's Candle. And I walk out of the house with a, another dog we had named Furphy because he had a lot of fur. My wife named him Furphy. And um, I heard a voice say, go to the animal shelter. So I go. I walk in the door, and the voice says, what's that dog's name? There was a dog sitting by the door. And, I mean, it's not me talking. You have to understand. I may say the words, but I have no control over them. They just come Mm -hmm. out of me. And um, they said, oh, his name is Buddy. He's been here less than 15 minutes. People didn't Mm -hmm. like his behavior. I said, I'm here to take him home. (sighs) And I did. And, Mm -hmm. um, And I have to tell you that... You see, I've learned from an animal intuitive friend of mine, Amelia Kincaid. Again, you talk about consciousness. I met mm-hmm. her years ago, and she said she talked to animals. So I thought, she's nuts, okay? See, that's my mm-hmm. belief. You right. talk to animals? What are you, crazy? Yeah. But when pets have disappeared in Connecticut, once while she was in California, another time she's in Africa teaching, she told me where to find these creatures. And you say, how can you be in Africa and know what's going on in Connecticut? She gets into the animal's head. I never forget. Well, I wrote a foreword to one of her books because I said, oh, boy, you cannot deny this. I mean, she said, the animal's alive. I can see through its eyes. And she always, the details are incredible. Oh, wow. Um, Then I just find the animal. But this buddy, when I was taking him home from the shelter and stopped for gas, he jumped out of the car and, it was hell trying to catch him again in the busy sh- street we were on. I was oh. just yelling at people. I just have owned him for five minutes. He doesn't know me. Hell, and everybody stopped their cars and helped me get him. I wow. Get home. See, and that's where, again, the still pond. Emilio used to say to me, Bernie, stop screaming the animal's name. Quiet your mind. Get into their head. Yeah. So we got home, and I said to Buddy in my head, why did you do that? And I never forget his answer. I belong to a couple. 
and I know I didn't make this up. The wife was very nice to me. The husband's an alcoholic. When he'd come home from work, the wife would say, take the dog for a walk. He would take me in the car, and he'd go drinking, and he'd leave me locked in the car, and he would abuse me. I don't oh, wow. ever want to be in a car again. Oh, I wow. I would never treat you that way. Never would I do that to you. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, a few weeks later, I accidentally opened the door in the car by hitting the button that opens, you know, it's one of these sliding doors on a minivan. Right. And I didn't know I had done it. I'm walking away from the car to go get something. When I came back, I saw, oh, my God, the door's open. He's gone. No, he was sitting in the open car waiting wow. for me. Wow. And I may add, our dog, Furphy, was in stop and shop looking for me. That's what's so funny. <laughs> but how did I know he was there? I quieted my mind. You know, where is he? Instead of screaming his name, and I realized, oh, he's looking for me. I'll go to Stop and Shop. Mm-hmm. And uh, the security guard had him. And uh, when he saw me come in, he said, you're looking for your dog? I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's the part that impresses me over and mm-hmm. over. You see, you may not believe okay. something, but live by your experience, not mm-hmm. by your beliefs. Mm-hmm. I think that that's uh, a, a part of mourning the people I have lost is being able to talk to them afterwards. Yeah. And um, look for and signs have, too. Yes. Yeah. T- tell us I, some about I, that. I always tell people to look. I mean, I, I find pennies as a message from God. And mm-hmm. when my mother died, I found almost three dozen pennies. And where were they in the driveway of our house? How the hell did they get there? And more remarkable, I found them on the way back from the mailbox. I mean, there's no explaining it. And then what did the grandchildren start saying? Oh, they're pennies from heaven. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. It was amazing yeah. to me. But one father, for instance, he his, his uh, son was killed. And um, if you have time for two stories... And the son was very much into butterflies. His whole room was decorated with them. He studied them. And after the boy died, the father was taking a walk in Connecticut, and this butterfly followed him everywhere. So he went back to his son's room, and guess what? It's a South American butterfly. What the hell is it doing in Connecticut? See? Oh, my gosh. Um, A friend of mine... uh, only has daughters. The husband always felt he would like another male in the house. And so one of the daughters went to get him a male dog. The dog she picked, however, had already been selected by someone at the breeders. And the tragic part of this is that daughter was murdered a couple of years later. They decided to help the house out. They would go down and get a dog and bring it in to make the father feel better, too. They go to the same breeder. The room is filled with a bunch of poodles running around, making noise, and the breeder gave them a you know, a command, and they all stopped except one dog who ran over, jumped in the father's lap, and the two of them basically started crying together, hugging each other. Wow. The breeder said, oh, my God. I said, what do you mean? That's the dog your daughter picked out a couple of years ago that people couldn't keep it. They brought it back. Oh. Yeah. Boy, did that heal the family. Oh, my they gosh. Dog home. And 
that's in the book, you know, Love, mm-hmm. Animals, and Miracles and stories mm-hmm. like that. But again, that's a those wonderful are not book. coincidences. Yeah, that consciousness is there, and it was shared, you know, mm-hmm. and the animal made the decision, and, and it's just amazing how these mm-hmm. things happen. But you know it's true. Our consciousness mm-hmm. is not just focused in us. See, even on a simple level, people who say their doctor was compassionate and caring get over the flu faster than people who say, oh, my doctor, you know, he doesn't listen. He doesn't seem to care. So, again, you, we change each other with that consciousness. I always tell people, mm-hmm. when you're walking down the street, pick out a total stranger and send them your love mm-hmm. as they're coming towards you. And then watch the look they give you when they walk past you and look you in the eye. Right. You'll feel something different. You know, it's not just a look uh, at a stranger. It's something different. I was, when we were waiting for you to call in, was saying that if you're inclement and you're, uh, you can't move out of your chair or your bed, you still have the power to be very giving and loving. Uh, and by the virtue of what you're saying, do you have other examples of where people yeah, actually did pick it? popped into my head that you're talking about. Wow. Every morning when I walk our dog, Rags, oh boy, don't let me forget to talk about his name, where that came oh, from. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right, I'm walking him, and I say, you know, I meditate and say a prayer for everybody in our family, like a family circle. I start with my wife. I go all the way around, you know, our kids, grandchildren, uh, friends of their families, every, and our daughter-in-law, one of them, because we have five kids, um, when I would get to her, I would I, I was having a feeling that something wasn't right. So I was just sending for her family and loved ones because I hadn't heard anything, but I just had this feeling that that was something new, that something wasn't right. Put something on Facebook about it being the day her brother died 27 years ago at age 27. And that a friend of hers had just died. So it was a very emotional time for her this week. And here I was feeling it. And I told her I knew something was happening, but I didn't know what. So I've just been praying for her. Then um, at the animal shelter again, I got another message after Buddy died. Um to go down there, and sure enough, who's sitting there, this beautiful Alaskan husky named Brady. Mm. And that's my name in Irish. And some um. children of an I- one boy of an Irish family was named after me because I helped his mother and saved his life. And so she named him Brady. Um, but as she said to me, because we're Irish, but it's after you. So I walk in, and again... Who's picked up that morning? This beautiful husky named Brady. So again, oh I'll take him home. And I did. <laughs> but he was mm-hmm. such a big active dog because we have a house full of other dogs and cats. And they were just, you know, scared of him. Not that he was a problem, you know, threatening them. But he was just running around and so big. I mean, literally, he went through every room in the house in the first five minutes he was here. And they were all staring at, what is that thing? So we found him another home. But mm-hmm. when I went to bring him back to, you know, another family. There's this little white fluffy thing sitting there staring at me with soulful eyes. 
I said, oh, does he have a name? No, I'll take him home because he was talking to me. Ah. And I named him after a poem that I found in a book of poetry. Um, and one section was animal poetry. And why it touched me was it has to do with the medical school. A soldier, and his name Rags by Edmund Vance Cook. You can look it up on the Internet. But basically, this dog named Rags saves many soldiers' lives. And then the war is over. They're all getting sent home again. And the soldier wanted to take the dog with him, but he can't find him. But he said, I get back to medical school, and one day there's a class. And we go in, and there's a dog cut open on the table. Oh, dear. And he walks over, and it's Rags. Oh, dear. And the dog licks his hand and then dies. Oh, dear. And as he said, if there's no place in heaven for love like that, then I'll take my place in hell. And uh, it had me in tears, especially, you know, the medical school and all that stuff. So yeah. I named our little friend Rags. Uh. But it's, again, what the animals teach us. Mm-hmm. And I know the truth in the licking. Because as a surgeon, uh, when we had a house full of animals, yeah, I took care of them. I mean, we had veterinary help, too. But, you know, wounds and other things and surgery and cesarean sections and everything oh, I was okay. doing on all these creatures. And one of them was this wonderful little rabbit named Smudge. And when I would take care of her on the, you know, the counter in the kitchen, and how did I know if I were hurting her with her wound, she would turn her head and lick my fingers. That impressed the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't take a bite out of my finger and say, you're hurting me, Stop. It was a lick, and I would let go. And she also taught me forgiveness because the dog, Furphy, when I thought they knew each other and were friends, uh, I made an error in judgment. He grabbed her one day and shook her, I'm sure, like a stuffed toy. I wasn't there at that moment. Um, Uh. But two weeks after that, when I went out looking for her to bring her in the house, which she didn't like to do uh, because she wanted to be out with the cats, and I would worry about the rabbit, you know, who oh, might jump yeah. in our yard and that kind of thing. I couldn't find her in the front yard. And I'm getting a little anxious, yelling her name. And then oh. I see Furphy's lying on the ground in the yard. So I walked over to him to pet him. And who was hiding under his back, you know, in the fur so you can't see her? The little rabbit. So oh, my gosh. And I thought, oh. wow. You know? She has forgiven him, and they're buddies now, and he's doing her a favor. That's oh, my gosh. That's the part that impressed me and how they are such teachers. And while oh. I'm thinking about that, I have to get back to my buddy story. Yeah. That, you see, I was very sad about the dog's death. And, well, there's a story called Wolfen, which would share it in the same way. A knight comes home. This is why it touched me again my past history, a knight comes home from the war, knows his wife has given birth, goes up to the nursery. It's covered with blood and the crib is turned over. Mm -hmm. His dog is sitting there with blood all over him. Mm -hmm. So he picks up his sword and kills his dog. And I killed animals like that in my past life. I know how it felt. Reading that story, I started crying and the kid's that I was reading it to looked at me like, "What's what are you nuts? It's a story. But uh, oh, it tore me to uh, pieces. 
Then he goes and picks up the crib. And what does he find? A dead wolf and his living son. He's yeah. killed the dog that saved his son's life. Yeah. And I know that feeling. Uh. What does he do? He builds an enormous cairn, you know, with rocks. I mean, a monument to him. And I've done that at the bottom of our driveway is an enormous pile of rocks that's mm. a memorial to all the animals, as well as mm. all their own separate little burial sites with stones mm. and little monuments and different things, so I know who's where. But you see, the angel comes and says, okay, you killed your dog. <clears throat> I want to take you up to heaven where the dogs who died this month are having a parade. And we go up to heaven. And there are all the dogs walking by carrying a beautiful candle. They look gorgeous and at peace. And then I notice there's a dog coming with a dark candle. Mm. So I said to the angel, oh, excuse me, there's a dog coming with a dark candle. Oh, go light it for him. So I go. And who is it, of course? Buddy. Mm. I said, Buddy, I'm here to light your candle. And I never forget Mm. his answer. They do, but your tears keep putting it out. See, you talk about being free of death. That freed me from all the grief and craziness that went with it when my family members died. See, to let me know that my tears are making it harder for them and that they want me to enjoy my life and live and not spend. Ah. Yeah. It's like it's like remembering that your grief is because you love and loved. And if you can like look at the other side of the grief and focus yeah. on the power of your love and your attachment, that yeah, it's grieving, but it's also because of love. Yeah. I mean, it's not that don't feel sad. I found it hard not mm-hmm. to be somebody's child. Oh, yeah. I, I, I would say to people, oh, I got to tell that to my mother. And they'd say, excuse me, your mother's dead. Oh, mm-hmm. I forgot. You know what I mean? There's, mm-hmm. See, there's yeah. still a part of my life. I painted a portrait of my mm-hmm. parents, and it's hanging in the front hall. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to them every day. But mm-hmm. you see, what they're telling me is, hey, Bernie, lighten up. Have a nice day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not, oh, I'm so sad. They're gone. They're not gone. They're here taking care of me still. Mm-hmm. With what I, I have messages fa- and mottos to live by, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 I have found that when I needed to say, hey, mom, dad, like to hear from you, that within a matter of 24 hours, something has <laughs> definitely right. stood out that's been quite odd, that's clearly individual to them. That's what I say, whether it's the pennies, you know, from heaven or anything mm-hmm. else, ask for a sign. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, you know, if you don't mind, I can keep telling stories forever. This you can. <laughs> a woman whose father was, go, you know, dying, and he said, look for an eagle. You'll know mm-hmm. I'm around. You'll see an eagle. Mm-hmm. And he died. And where mm-hmm. they lived, there were no eagles. And mm-hmm. she also got a job, I think it was in California, where there were no eagles. But mm-hmm. her birthday came up. And in that same year, I don't know how many months later, but she got a gift from one of the family members. And she opens it, and it's a kite. And as she unfolds the kite and puts it together, it's a giant eagle. And she wow. said, what were you doing? Why did you send me this? Um, and the friend said, I couldn't help it. You know, it's like my going to the animal shelter. 
She said, mm-hmm. I was in the store, and I had to buy this for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one, I don't know, maybe this can be a concluding story. On my website, BernieSiegelMD.com, it's um, you can't um, sleep with a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Now, the butterfly is a symbol of transformation, too. And often mm-hmm. people will draw that purple butterfly, you know, or a kite or balloon going up in the sky in the mm-hmm. segment of the page that is related to death um, that they're drawing on. But a patient of mine, before she died, wanted to resolve her troubles with her mother who lived on the Hawaiian island of Kauai. And I love it there. I wish my wife would have moved there with me. But anyway, um, <laughs> the so she went to the island. We got an invitation to lecture there about a year or so later. So we head there. We're doing some shopping the day before the outdoor workshop on the Saturday. And we went into a store. I think it was a drugstore. But there was a butterfly flying around, totally confused by the lights. My wife puts her hand up. and the Because we're always rescuing, as I said, animals. And mm-hmm. the butterfly lands on her hand. So we're thrilled. We walk outside to release it. But it won't fly away. It goes on her shoulder and sits there. I said, well, there's no point in trying to get rid of it. It won't leave. Let's get in the car and go to the hotel. So we drive to the hotel. Get out of the car. I'm always expecting it will leave now. But it goes up to our room and stays Mm. in the kitchen with us while we're eating dinner. Mm. Um, As it got late, I finally said to my wife, because it was sitting in her hand on her shoulder, it was just all over. I said, you know, you cannot sleep with a butterfly. You've got to get rid of it. And she goes outside and brushes it off her shoulder and comes back in. Says, okay. I said, look at your other shoulder. It came back in the room. So I said, we got to get it off. Because at this point, I knew, and I mean this, that was the spirit of my patient being with us. So I started talking to it like it's a person. Yeah. And we gave it a dish of sugar water and, you know, go ahead and have a drink and eat something and then we're going to bed. And it did. The next day, again, I just talked to it. I said, look, we're going to do a workshop. I want to talk to people about the symbol of a butterfly. So I'm going to put you in a bag and then open the bag when I start to lecture and you can fly out and, you know, be a symbol. Huh. And the butterfly gets in the bag. Oh, my gosh. I fold the top. We go to the workshop. I get up at the podium. This is outdoors. Um, I open the bag. The butterfly flies out and then circles the group from 9 in the morning till 5 at night. Get out. When we finished the workshop, the butterfly flew away. And there's no way, again, you can explain to me how the hell that can happen unless mm-hmm. there was that woman's consciousness with that butterfly. But in oh one more uh, every time, you see, what makes me again a believer, I gave a lecture one day and knew I wasn't giving it. What mm. do I mean? I made an outline notes. I wasn't paying any attention. I was just talking for two hours and it was just coming to me. First person after the lecture came up and said, that was better than usual. I've heard you before. I said, I mm. agree with you. The next person came up and said, standing in front of you for the entire lecture was this man. So I drew a picture of him for you. 
and I knew who it was. It was oh my, my inner guide, George, uh, oh. that I met in a meditation. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he's a strange-looking fellow when I first met him. Big beard, little cap on his head, long robes. Um, you know, I thought, you know, you dress kind of funny, because I expected, I always said, Jesus and Moses to come, you know, if I'm going to meet a guide. And this fellow appeared and said, my name is George. A year or two later, I was speaking again. See, once that happened, though, I don't have to prepare anything. I mean it. I don't know yeah. about what I'm going to say. I can bring things mm-hmm. with me, but I just let it flow, like mm-hmm. I'm talking to you now. Oh, I know. <laughs> and and so I, I'm speaking again, and mystic friend Alga Worrell, she was a healer and a mystic, and they did a lot of scientific studies of her. Um, she came up to me after the funeral and said, Bernie, you Jewish I said, why are you asking? Because I spoke at a Christian funeral. Um, she said, no, there's a rabbi standing next to you. And huh. she described George again. And then I understood why he was dressed the way he was. Uh, you know, they were all garments related to his religion. Yeah. Then to make it even better, a couple of years later, I mean, I rely on George now, so he's a part of my life. A couple of years Good. later, I'm a stop and shop, you know, where I carry on and have a lot of fun with people. I always say it's my therapy sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this woman says my name out loud. Oh, Dr. Seagull, you know, when I'm kidding around. I said, shh, don't say my name out loud. i just carrying on, you know, and having fun so people don't have to know who it is. And yeah. She, I said, give me another name. What do you think she called me in 10 seconds? George. <laughs> George. It's okay, uh. George. Uh, <laughs> I said, Lady, I got a story to tell you. <laughs> How does that happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, think of all the male names in the universe, and she picks out. So mm-hmm. I know the truth again mm-hmm. because I've been there from the near death to the past life to the. Mm-hmm. You know, my angel, who I'm sure has saved my life many times. I mean, it. I, I could have been killed at least three times yeah. from auto accidents and falling off the roof of our house when a ladder broke. And, oh, yeah. well, I never stopped telling stories. I had a bunch of, of students at college, and I said, make out your death certificate. You know what I wrote on mine? Falls off the yeah. roof with the family yelling, at your age, you shouldn't be up there doing those <laughs> A few months later, I stepped off the ladder, oh, no. <laughs> and it was a wooden ladder that had rotted, and the oh, no. and I fell off, but oh, I landed dear. on my feet. See, that I can't explain. The ladder is tilted, you know, on the house. You fall down. Why aren't you bouncing off the ladder? I landed way out past the ladder on my feet. Get out. It. I, I mean... I was a little tense, so I toppled over. I mean, if I had known, ah, the angel just put you down, relax. But I toppled over and gave my head a good knock. uh, Ah. A mild concussion. But nothing else. No broken bones, no. Oh, you know, and this was funny. I said, I must have an angel. This was, I was sharing it like I'm sharing it with you with an audience. I said, I must have an angel. Because that was before I met and learned about George. I said, I must have an angel. And this guy comes out of the audience and says, yep, you have an angel. I said, how do you Mm. know? He said, I know. Mm. I know his name. Mm. I said, really? He said, yeah. What what did you say when the ladder broke? Mm. I said, oh, shit. 
He said, that's your angel's name. And burst out laughing. But see, that, that's why, remember I said to you, laughter, it takes away fear and everything. Uh-huh. What, do I, what do I yell when something happens? Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you skid on ice. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things have happened, you know, riding your bike. And I'm flying through the air. And mm-hmm. I yell, oh, shit. And then I start <laughs> laughing. When I hit the ground, I didn't have a scratch. Because I was so relaxed, I didn't get hurt. And even when there's bad traffic, you know, ah, shit, I'm never going to get to, you know, the lecture. And then suddenly state, you know, police show up and clear the traffic and they get you going. I mean, it's it's hysterical how many times I've said it. But even if it doesn't work, you're laughing. You know what I mean? Once I yell that out, it's it's I'm I'm in a different place. I know everything will be all right. You know, it's like the resistance is what really causes the pain, yeah. not the actual event. And uh, and yeah. somehow well, that's your that's your decree. Available to everyone. <laughs> I bet it's been called on by many often. Right. Well, Bernie, I'm only going to let you go if you promise to come back and talk about all things spiritual, because I think um, that's a huge, incredibly huge uh, part of everything that you talk about, medical and. Yeah. Is, yeah, I yeah. think we could talk about religion, spirituality, how I grew up with it. Um, I, I, I've just been bringing books to our library. Uh, they have a fundraiser and they sell books, and it's amazing how many spiritual books I have in the house here. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm saving them to reread. And that's something I would tell people to do. Read the same book every three or four years. Mm. If the book doesn't improve, you haven't changed. You're not seeing mm. new things in it. Because that was something that struck me because I would get used to folding down the corners of pages, you know, mm-hmm. and marking certain things. And then I'd be rereading a book and I'd say, how did I miss that? You know, that yeah. one statement. So yeah. keep rereading the same books and you'll get therapy out of it. Yeah, just like I keep rereading yours, Bernie. <laughs> All right. Bless you. Thank oh, you. And bless I do, you. Let me tell you, that sometimes mm-hmm. I read my own book. One of the ones I love is the 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. Because uh-huh. it's 365 topics. And when I reread it, I can't remember writing it. You know what I mean? Uh, it's like, yeah. wow, where did that come from? I don't yeah. remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bless you so much. Thank you so much Thank for you. walking us through this. Stuff that doesn't need to be dark anymore. Thanks for shining the light on it. Oh, you lit yeah. our candles. Yeah. All the troubles. This is part of... Uh, you know, in Judaism, that it's like the crack in the vase lets the light in. Yeah. So the curse becomes a blessing. The charcoal becomes a diamond under pressure. Yeah, it's all that symbolism. Oh, Bernie, you're great. Okay, folks, okay. that's it for today. But he's going to join us back. Thank you. And if you're great, you call me great. You see what's in the other person. Ah. What's in you. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.